How many of you can relate to this video because it was a small picture of the scene that took place this morning in your rush to get to church? Anybody? Well, um, good morning. My name is Brian. For those of you who are new to our church, um, I'm one of the youth pastors on staff. We're glad that you are here with us this morning. And uh, as that video kind of set the stage this morning, we're going to be talking about this topic of hurry. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about how, the, how there's a correlation between hurry and our spiritual lives. And uh, this morning, Pastor David asked me to be with you. He's uh, visiting his grandchildren in Chattanooga and uh, is praying for you all this morning as we are, uh, have the opportunity to be here uh, together. One of the things that excites me most about this time of year um, is after Christmas is over, it's really kind of just a chance to slow down. Now, I'm kind of blessed because um, most of my family, uh, they all, the immediate family anyhow, they live here in town in the area, and so it doesn't really require a lot of out-of-town travel for, for me and my family, but I know that a lot of people, that's not the case. There's oftentimes a lot of travel that has to take place to go and visit family, to go and do, to buy presents, to the rush of just everything piles up, and um, I, I can kind of relate. I, I think that all throughout the year, um, I can resonate with this idea that hurry uh, is just a part of my DNA that um, I've been wired to, 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 to um, be on the go all the time. And I find myself in this trap more often than I'd like to admit. A couple uh, months ago, David uh, asked me if I would be willing to preach on this Sunday. And at, this, at the time, I was reading through this book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. And uh, as I was reading through this book, I was just really, I mean, it was stepping on my toes in all the best ways. Uh, it was really resonating with me. And uh, I was like, you know what, I think that there's some principles from this book that I feel like would be really beneficial. So this morning, my goal is I first and foremost want to preach from God's Word. And we're going to look at a few different script, uh, scripture examples of the way that Jesus was never in a hurry. But also, I'm going to take a couple principles and borrow them from this book that I think that we can um, emulate from our very own lives. The more that we read the Bible, the more that I think that we can understand that, uh, and, and learn uh, the ways that the enemy works. You see, Satan doesn't always show up um, the way that we think the, the way that we think that Hollywood would depict him. He doesn't have the uh, pitchfork and the big tail that wraps around. Uh, he doesn't show up with like a guitar and fire on an SNL skit with Will Ferrell. Um, he, he shows up in, in very unassuming ways. He could uh, possibly show up in ways like this in your life: an alert on your phone while you're reading the Bible. A multi-day Netflix binge or a full-on dopamine addiction to Instagram. A Saturday morning at the office. A Sunday morning, uh, a, a, a soccer game on a Sunday morning. Or a commitment after commitment after commitment in a life of speed and hurry. Corey Ten Boom, she once wisely said that if the devil cannot make you sin, he will make you busy. In our culture, slow is this derogatory term. Think about that. When we, when, we, uh, when, when we go out to eat at a restaurant, the service is really kind of bad. We off, in Lousy, we say that the, the service was slow. When, when a movie is boring, again, we complain about the plot line being slow. Case in point, Merriam-Webster defines slow as mentally dull, stupid, or naturally inert, or sluggish, lacking in readiness, promptness, or willingness. So the message seems to be abundantly clear that slow is bad and fast is good. I'd like to give you a peek behind the curtain in my own life at just how much this resonates with me, all right? So um, I live in Asbury Place in, in, in Clemens uh, that kind of backs up to Tanglewood, 
And uh, depending on uh, where I'm coming from, which is just about anywhere, there's really two ways to, to access my neighborhood. Now, um, I may or may not have, when we first moved in about six years ago, um, began to calculate, uh, based on various different times of the day and traffic patterns and that kind of stuff, how long it took me to get to my house. Um, An Excel sheet may or may not have been used to to track the time that it took me to get home and so that I could reference that and figure out what was the fastest route of travel. Um, And I may or may not be known for going a way that might even have more miles if traffic is backed up. And it might even take me longer because just by moving and not sitting still and stop traffic, I feel like I'm going somewhere faster. Does anybody else resonate with that at all? I live an incredibly hurried life. I fill my schedule with taking the kids to their practices and games and meeting church members and other ministry professionals for lunches or try to, meeting, try to meet with a student for ice cream or su- supporting students outside of the church at their games. I try to be efficient with my time, and because of that, I wait until the very last minute to be productive, and then I go out the door and I rush to get to where I'm going so I'm not late. I live out this idea that slow is bad and fast is good, but it's not. In the upside-down kingdom of Jesus, our value system is turned on its head. Hurry is of the devil, but slow is of Jesus. Walter Adams, he was the spiritual director to C.S. Lewis, and he said this regarding hurry. To walk with Jesus is to walk at a slow, unhurried pace. Hurry is the death of prayer. It only impedes and spoils our work. It never advances it. We all know our world has sped up to a frantic pace, but it hasn't always been that way. So how did we get there? Well, let's take a a look down memory lane for just a moment. We're going to look back through time. We'll begin with the sundial, a.k.a. the original Casio watch. As far back as approximately 200 B.C., people complained about this new technology and what it was doing to their society. The the Roman playwright Platus, he turned anger into poetry. He said, the gods confound the man who first found out how to distinguish hours. Confound him too, who in this place set up a sundial to cut and hack my days so wretchedly into small portions. So next time you're running late, you can maybe say, gods confound the man that invented that infernal thing. Well, fast forward to the monks our spiritual ancestors, who played a key role in the acceleration of our Western society. In the 6th century, St. Benedict organized the monastery around seven times of prayer each day. And by the time the 12th century rolled around, the monks had invented the mechanical clock to rally the monastery into prayer. But most historians would point to the year 1370 as the turning point in the West's relationship to time. That was the year that the first public clock tower was erected in Cologne, Germany. And before that, time was natural. It was linked to the relation of the earth to its axis in the four seasons. We went to bed with the moon and we got up with the sun. Days were long and busy in the summer, but short and slow in the winter. And there seemed to be a rhythm to the day and even the year. And then in 1879, you had Thomas Edison and the invention of the light bulb which made it possible to stay up past the sunset and to be productive. And just because I like throwing in fun trivia, um, before Edison, the average person slept, get this, 11 hours a night. In America today, 
We're down to an average of about seven as the median number of hours per sleep. And that's two and a half hours less sleep than just a century or so ago. Is it any wonder that we're exhausted all the time? About a century ago, technology started to change our relationship with time yet again. These so-called labor-saving devices, uh, for example, in winter, you used to have to go out into a forest, risk being eaten alive by a wild animal, chop down a tree, bring it home, cut it up into pieces, build a fire yet again with your hands, and then you would have warmth. Now all you have to do is say, Alexa, turn up the dining room temperature to 70 degrees, and all of a sudden you, you have warmth in your home. Or another example, we used to have to walk everywhere or perhaps ride in a carriage. Now we have cars to get from place to place in a hurry. We used to make all of our food from scratch. We would toil the, uh, till the soil and, and, and harvest the crop and bring, bring it inside and make a meal. Now we have things like Grubhub that bring it right to us. We used to write letters by hand and now we have email and of course our best friend, artificial intelligence. Yet in spite of our smartphones and our programmable coffee pots and dishwashers and laundry machines and toasters, most of us feel like we have less time, not more. So these devices, they really do save us time. The question is, where does all of our time go? The answer is that we spend it on more things, other things. The answer isn't just figuring out how to get more time, because then we would just fill that void too. We must learn to say no to things. And if you're anything like me, that's a really hard thing to do. When I was in seminary, I went to Campbell Divinity School, and uh, the dean, founding dean of the Divinity School on the commissioning day for all of the new students, it was the very first chapel service of every semester, um, he would start off and he would give this speech that we called the subtraction speech every single semester. And what he would do is with the new students, he would challenge each one of us. He would look us in the eye and he would, he would say, you're getting ready to t embark on a great journey. You're going to be adding a lot of stuff to your plate. You're going to be wrestling with God's word. You're going to be trying to seek the deeper meaning of God's truths. You're going to be studying original languages. You're going to be trying to figure out church history and things like Christian ethics and, and what all these different things mean. You're going to be embarking on a 90-credit-hour journey. For most of you, that's going to take at least four years. So my challenge to you, as he looked us in the eye, he would say, is to figure out what you can subtract. What is it that you can take away from your lives as you're adding something very significant so that you can cross the finish line? Because if not, he would challenge us that his fear was that we would not be able to graduate if we didn't find something in our bandwidth to remove from our schedules. Could it be that you and I continue to add too much to our plates that God never intended for our frail and human bodies to handle? What can we find to subtract? Well, this concept of subtraction, it actually has... Uh, vocabulary in, in God's word. And it's a term that he calls Sabbath. It's a day of rest. It's a day of removing ourselves from the, the busyness of life's to-do list. And Andrew Sullivan, in an essay for New York Times Magazine, entitled, I Used to Be a Human Being, he had this provocative analysis. He said that the Judeo-Christian tradition recognized a critical distinction and tension between noise and silence, between getting through the day and getting a grip on one's whole life. The Sabbath, the Jewish institution co-opted by Christianity, was a moment of calm to reflect on our lives under the light of eternity, and it helped define much of the Western public life 
once a week for centuries, only to dissipate with the scarcely a passing regret into the commercial racket of the past couple of decades. It reflected a new battered belief that a sustained spiritual life is simply unfeasible for most mortals without these refuges from noise and work to buffer us and to remind us of who we really are. I believe that he was onto something, that we have lost this day of rest. We've lost more than a day of rest, though. We lost a day for our souls to open up to God. All this reached a climax, though, as we are still on our looking back through history. And we're going to end in the year 2007. When the history books are written, they will point to 07 as an inflection point that was on par with 1440 when Gutenberg invented the printing press, which set the stage for the Protestant Reformation and the Enlightenment, which together transformed Europe and the world. And what was it that happened in 2007? Drumroll, please. Most of you, you have it in your pocket right now. The smartphone. The invention of the iPhone put us on a trajectory of busyness that none of us could possibly ever, ever fathom. It was also the year that Facebook opened up to anybody with an email address. Twitter was landed as a platform. The the cloud in the sky uh, was first released in the App Store and a list of other technological breakthroughs that all marked around the year 2007 as the start of the digital age. The world has radically changed in just a few short years. In very recent memory, none of us had a smartphone or Wi-Fi access. Teenagers, can you imagine? Now, we can't imagine living without these devices. Whether for the good or the bad, these devices have put our work and our emails in our pocket, a push notification for our favorite social media platform, our our calendars on a color-coded list that tell us when we should leave and when we're going to arrive. Our lives are on a trajectory for hurry and rush and envy of other people's lifestyles that cause us to go, 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 to want more, more, and more. Meyer Friedman was a cardiologist who rose to fame for theorizing that type A people who are chronically angry and in a hurry are more prone to attacks. Friedman coined a phrase that he called the hurried sickness. After noticing a trend in some of his at-risk patients who were cardiovascular patients, And he defined hurried sickness this way. He said that hurried sickness is a continuous struggle, an unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. And deep breath here, he said that in the 1950s. How do you know if you have this up and coming disease? It's fairly straightforward. There was another book uh, called The Time Cure where Rosemary Sword and Philip Zimbaro, they offered these symptoms of hurried sickness. Moving from one checkout line to another because it looks shorter or faster. Counting the cars in front of you as you approach a red light and either getting in the fast lane or the lane that has the least amount of cars. Multitasking to the point of forgetting one of the tasks. See anybody else relate here or is it just me? Hurry is a threat not only to our emotional health, but it's also to our spiritual lives as well. How do we remedy this? How do we fix our souls? How do we come alongside God's plan 
for how he created our bodies to operate and flow in the midst of this fast-paced world. Well, I wish that I really had all the answers. I wish I could tell you what to do. Um, you know, take these two things, come back, we'll check in next week. But unfortunately, I don't have all the answers. The good news, though, is that God does. In his word, he spells out this thing that the creator of our soul knows that we need the most. You see, Jesus gave us all kinds of incredible uh, invitations. The more I read his word, the more invitations I see that he extends to us. But what is it that some people do with invitations? Now, I'm not saying, I'm not pointing any fingers or anything like that. But with an invitation, oftentimes there's this new pattern that's been happening, and now it's probably been around for a long time, but let's say you get a birthday card in the mail, and it says RSVP by such and such date. What do we do? We wait until like the last possible minute to RSVP, right? Um, Because maybe something better is going to come along that will need our attention. Um, Or some people, even worse, now uh, I'm I'm not judging here, uh, they'll, they'll wait until after the RSVP, RSVP deadline has already passed and then be like, oh, is it still okay if I come to that? Right? Sometimes we treat Jesus' invitations the same way. We'll delay the invitation. We'll be like, oh, when I have more time, when I get around to it. When Matthew chapter 11, Jesus had just finished equipping the disciples and then he left them to go out and to start teaching and preaching in their cities. And when we see these incredible words being offered to the disciples, I want us to also read these incredible words being invited to us as well. Will you read along with me from this passage in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30? It says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard this passage countless times before. You've probably heard a dozen or more preachers preach on this passage of scripture. But my invitation to you this morning is something that I believe that God has for you in this moment. I would encourage you to just, if you're okay with this, close your eyes. Take in a deep breath. And this time I'm going to reread this passage from Eugene Peterson's translation of the same passage from the message. And he says this, Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me. And you will recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you will learn to live freely and lightly. You can open your eyes. What a great invitation. This is an invitation for all of the tired, all of the burned out, all the stressed, all those who find themselves stuck in traffic more often than they like those who are behind on their to-do list and reaching for another caffeine fix just to get them through the day. Hidden here in plain sight is this incredible invitation of Jesus and what Dallas Willard called the secret of the easy yoke. In his book on the the spirit of disciplines, Dallas Willard wrote this in commenting about this passage in Matthew chapter 11. He said, In this truth lies the secret of the easy yoke. The secret involves living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his life, 
adopting his overall lifestyle. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully while living the rest of our lives just as everybody else around us does. But this is a strategy that is bound to fail. Here is what Dallas Willard is saying. It's, it's simple, but it's really profound. He's saying if we wish to truly fix our souls, we must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. And we do this by listening to what Jesus says and then doing what he tells us to do. It means that we are to become an apprentice to the master of our souls. If you were to chart out the various events and the ministry opportunities that Jesus had in his three short years of ministry here on earth, I believe that you would see one thing that all of these encounters had in common, and it was that Jesus never seemed to rush anywhere that he went. He always seemed to have time for the people that needed it the most, even if it was an inconvenience to him. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus was on his way to heal Jairus' only daughter, who was dying. But all of a sudden, a woman appears in the, the middle of this story, and she had an uncontrollable bleeding, and she interrupted him, and, and she said she believed that if she could simply touch the cloak of Jesus, then all of a sudden her, her, her symptoms would be healed. Jesus knew that it wasn't going to just simply mean touching a cloak. He, he took time to minister to this lady in her need. And if I'm Jarius, I know that I'm like frantically pacing back and forth, watching all this like, Jesus, okay, it's great that you're like healing her and all this, but can you hurry up, man? Like, you know, I need, I, my, my daughter's on her deathbed. Like he's, he's probably worrying and frantic and hurrying Jesus through this, this moment. But Jesus was Lord over all, and he's certainly Lord over time. So he took time when time was needed. And after hearing the news of his best friend Lazarus in another passage of scripture, that he was on his deathbed, Jesus didn't rush yet again. Look what we see here in John chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his, her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead in death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he got up immediately and he went on his way, right? No, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Three of the Gospels record another one of the times that Jesus was not hurried. When, have, when, when having a crowd of about 5,000, uh, what, what most scholars believe to be, were men, there were probably women and children in addition to this number of 5,000, um, I would imagine uh, that there were probably a lot of hungry people. It says, the, the subheading, if you were to read this passage of scripture, says the feeding of the 5,000. Um, now, I, I'm, I'm inferring a little bit here, but I know that there's probably at least half of us in this room that we get hangry whenever we get hungry, right? Like we, we get agitated and things don't start going well, so I, I kind of like wrote in the feeding of the hangry 5,000. Um, but Jesus, he didn't, he didn't just teach them along this hillside and then say, all right, now take what I've taught you and go and apply it. Be gone. Go feed yourselves. No, he took time to feed them and to make a miracle happen. It was incredible. Jesus also constantly took time to escape the crowds to spend time with his father in personal prayer. 
something that I believe that we all tend to do and overlook if things get busy. Well, here are some things that I think that we can learn about Jesus' invitation to come to him. The first is that this invitation is open to everyone. They're for people of all ages, all nationalities, all temperaments, and he calls them exactly as they are. It's easy to think that this call is perhaps for the religious elite or those who maybe have uh, done something amazing or for those who know God's word really well and are really scholarly in the Bible. No, this invitation is for everyone to take on the easy yoke. This invitation is also for those who are burdened. And I'd like to add in there that are burdened by sin. This, this phrase certainly could refer to people who are experiencing a difficult life circumstance or perhaps experiencing a physical weakness of some kind. But this phrase, weary and burden, it refers to a sense of one's sins bur- sin burdens and this need for a savior. And if you were to look at the context of this passage in Matthew chapter 11 and read the preceding verses that, that come before, you would also see that Jesus was speaking out and condemning some cities who were living in sin. That he, he mentioned by name a bunch of cities that were unrepentant and not living for God. Many Bible commentators would be quick to point out that Jesus' true meaning behind today's passage is one against legalism. The religious elite in Jesus' day, these Pharisees and Sadducees, they were adding, adding laws to God's people. And they were placing these difficult and burdensome, uh, cumbersome uh, laws on people and making it difficult for them to abide by them. It often left people discouraged in their pursuit of God. And Jesus is saying, is, it's not about trying to earn your good standing in my presence. It's about simply coming and being with me, which leads to the next lesson. The invitation is to learn about Jesus. In this invitation, he was inviting his followers to walk on a path that he was walking on ahead of them. He was blazing this trail. And he was inviting them to a schoolroom where he was going to be the teacher and the subject to learn from. And lastly, this invitation also offers rest for tired people. In fact, it offers rest twice. If we go back and read verses 28 and 29, there's a rest that is first given and then a rest that is found. Now, if you'd like to seek out more practical ways to slow down, maybe you're sitting here thinking about 2020s right around the corner. We're going to be celebrating the new year, uh, watching the ball drop, and I'm going to make some New Year's resolutions. Uh, maybe if you're wanting to make some resolutions as it relates to your spiritual lives, I would encourage you to check out two resources. One is this book that we've been in today, The, the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, uh, because he expands way more than, than I have time for on some really great practical words of wisdom on how we can slow and focus more on Jesus and apprentice under him. But the second one is this book uh, that I had to read in seminary called The Celebration of Discipline. Many of you have probably picked this up before and uh, either thumb through it or read it from cover to cover. Richard Foster, he, he has some great practical ways that we can uh, focus more on spiritual disciplines to, to increase in our walk with the Lord. And as we head into a new year, there's two of these that I think that I would really like to challenge uh, us to, to practice as it relates to being hurried. And number one is to observe a, a Sabbath, a true Sabbath, a day of rest. A day where we don't really have a lot to do other than to simply sit and to be, to enjoy family, to enjoy um, a movie, to sit down and just rest your soul. 
the author of Hebrews gives us an idea that this is not just some kind of Old Testament idea that because God rested on the sixth day, uh, or, uh, he cr- made creation in days one through six, he, he rested on the seventh. But this, he, ex- he said that we too should also observe this. So the author of Hebrews said this in chapter four, verses one through 11. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was, a, was, a, was of no value to them but because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter into that rest just as God had said. So I declared on my oath and my anger they shall never enter my rest. As we continue to get to these words in the next uh, part of this passage, I would encourage you to say rest aloud with me. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of this world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in those words. On the seventh day God rested from all of his works. And again in the passage above he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them and did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it, today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. What a great challenge in verse 11. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. It's almost like the Lord is trying to tell us, hey, there's a correlation here between resting and spiritual health, between busyness and spiritual decline. So perhaps if you're a Christian and you're going through a dry spell in your spiritual journey, do a self-assessment and see when was the last time that you rested and prayed and meditated on God's word. And there's even a really great, this is a free booklet, a free resource. If you haven't checked it out, our senior pastor, David Beatty, who wrote this, a great little tool to help you understand more about meditation that you can do on these days of rest for your soul. You can pick these up out at the resource center for free. The second thing I challenge our church to do is not only observe a Sabbath, um, but also to practice silence and solitude. Practice silence and solitude. The noise of the modern world makes us deaf to the voice of God, drowning out the one input that we need the most. The noise of this modern world makes us deaf to the voice of God. You know, we talked about the year 2007 earlier as being this pivotal year for uh, for the world with the rise of technology. 2007 was also a pivotal year for, for me. Um, I was a graduate from Appalachian State University where I did my undergrad. And in 2007, it was uh, September of 2007, I was living a lot for myself. Practicing silence and solitude was nowhere on my radar at the time. I had my own radio show at App. I had devoted myself to academics and I made the dean's list or the president's list pretty much every semester that I was there. Took on a job in addition to DJing some on the side. I was in this long-term relationship with this really cute redhead that now is my wife. 
I went to church some, and I attended an on-campus ministry called Campus Crusade, but there was something that was, that was going on in my life, and I felt like that was just going on, going through the motions more than it was actually feeding my soul. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't really focusing on God, and in September of 2007, I was running a little late to play music for a sorority mixer that I was supposed to be DJing and, and playing the music for. And my wife, uh, uh, Casey at the time, we, girlfriend at the time, she had a house on the outskirts of Boone where she let me keep a lot of my bulky DJ equipment. So I'd come over to her house, picked up my equipment, uh, and forgot something inside, some headphones. And I left the car running on this dark, moonless light uh, night. And uh, there were not a lot of uh, lights outside in this little town in Sugar Grove near on her road. Um, the only lights that happened to be on were the light, headlights on my car. And I was running late, so I decided to run down the steep driveway. And right in my trajectory, in my pathway, there was a concrete planter that I hit running full, spl- full, full speed running down this driveway. I clipped it with my left shin. I went flying over the top of it. My right knee was the first thing that took the, the next impact. And then my wrists. And I got up and I shook it off. I was like, okay, it's all right. You're, you're okay. You're good, champ. You got to go DJ. And I took, a, I took one step, and I knew that something wasn't right. I rolled up my jeans, I looked down, and I saw my kneecap was on the inside of my, my leg. And I was like, oh, I started crying. I somehow mustered up the strength to, uh, to, to find Casey to go inside and get her. She came to the door, and she was like, Brian, why are you down there on the ground? I was like, I'm hurt really bad. And she looked, she looked and she was like, oh, we got to call your mom. <laughs> So my mom and dad, they got in the car, they headed up to Boone where I was being discharged from the emergency room where I underwent, um, later I, I came back home to, uh, to the hospitals here in town and had a pretty extensive knee surgery that was going to take a pretty long recovery that, um, you know, th- that I think that, that I wish I could go back in time and redo. But I will say that during that difficult season, it forced me to slow down, it forced me to finally get a grip on life, to think about what was truly important. And it was only during this process of slowing down that I finally felt God calling me into ministry. I felt God's voice. Now, I don't necessarily know that I heard a voice. I don't necessarily know that he wrote something down, but I had this overwhelming sense one day in in leading a worship service um, and hearing this pastor's invitation uh, where where Jesus was uh, inviting Peter to walk out on water on faith to to him out on the, the water. He said, simply come, and his invitation was something that just got a grip of me, uh, a hold of me. And I'm, you know, sitting here with my bum knee and all this stuff, and I'm sitting here thinking, wow, you know, what is it that God wants me to do with my life? And for whatever reason, I felt like God called me into ministry, to, to youth ministry specifically. And so I, I will thank God forever that he used his ways to get a hold of my life. And I believe that, that you might not have some traumatic experiences But I believe that God in his omnipotence, one day he will get a hold of you if you're not living your life for him. And I hope that he does. My prayer is that he wouldn't allow anybody to leave this place, to leave us to our own devices, that he would somehow get a hold of our hearts and show us of the ways that we have fallen short of his glory and that the ways that we can live better for him. I believe that John Ortenberg and Richard Foster, they labeled this emerging practice of the spiritual discipline of slowing, and they did it so well. Orberg defined it as cultivating patience by deliberately choosing to place yourselves 
ourselves in positions where we simply have to wait. The basic idea behind this practice of slowing is this. You slow down your body, you slow down your life. So as we aim to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives, perhaps we can do things as simple as this. If you have your license, maybe you can drive the speed limit or get in the slow lane or come to a full stop at a stop sign or show up 10 minutes early for an appointment without your phone. Get in the longest checkout line at the grocery store. And then maybe you can do things like adding in a morning quiet time. Spending 10 minutes a day before, during, and after lunch in prayer. Be with Jesus. Invite his presence into your life. What's hard is not following Jesus. What's hard is following myself. Doing things my way. And therein lies this path to being overly exhausted. But with Jesus, the important thing is to know that there is still a yoke. But it's an easy yoke. There's a weight to it. But it's a weight that we are never meant to carry alone. So how will you live your life this coming week or this coming year? I would suspect that our world will most likely go from fast to faster, more hurried, more soulless, more draining. So the question is, will you travel on that soul-draining road? Will you follow the same old, tired, uncreative story of hurry and busyness and noise and materialistic living? Do you plan to just add in a little Jesus as you rush through life, make it a church when you can, pray when you find the time, mostly just to stay ahead of the wolf pack? Or, or will you remember that there's another road and another way? Will you off-ramp onto this narrow path? Will you radically alter the pace of your life to take up this easy yoke of Jesus? And when you fail, which is okay if we do, maybe we can begin again, this time a little slower. Maybe you're here today and you've never placed your life and your hope and faith in Jesus' hands. Jesus alone is the one who can provide rest for your souls. It's not in a book. It's not in a sermon. It's found in having a relationship with somebody who desperately wants a relationship with you. I pray that if you have not yet surrendered your life, that today would be the one where you would give your life to the one who transcends time and that you would open your heart to what the Holy Spirit might be prompting you in this moment. Jesus famously said in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes to only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I come that they may have life and to have it abundantly. I'm going to make it my New Year's resolution to try to live out this radical invitation from Jesus to come to me to find rest for your souls. Because I want that easy yoke. And I long to have a life and to have it abundantly. My prayer is that you would have that same desire for your life as well. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for this time to be in your word. Lord, in this moment, we just pray that we would make space for you. Pray that you would ask or give us room to do a deep work in our own lives and our own hearts and that you would forgive us for the times that we've put things before you. Forgive us for the times that we've lived for ourselves. Forgive us for the sins that have burdened our load. Lead us away from legalistic thoughts that, that we could do anything to achieve a right standing with you. But Lord, instead, we pray that you would... In, Allow us to just sit at, your, at the foot of your throne and to be with your son, Jesus. And Lord, if there is anyone here today who's not yet made a profession of faith, I pray that in this moment you would allow them to 
understand that they are a sinner in need of saving. And that you gave us your son Jesus to die for their sins. To live a life that, that we can never live. To die a death that we deserve so that we can have an eternity with you. Lord, we thank you for that grace. Be with us as we aim to live a slower, more restful life where we eliminate hurry and make room for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.